Just reading a saying from the Gospel of John. Uh, lost it. Chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. The death of Jesus. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be the special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had early visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of the preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we uh, come to this passage and see you on the cross, uh, Lord. And I'm sorry for the times when, having seen this lots before, I'm numbed to the amazing truths that we find here. Uh, and Lord, I pray that uh, by my reflections and my meditations on this passage, Lord, that you would shake us from that stupor. And Lord, that you would warm our hearts to you. Lord, that you would, by your spirit, uh, help us to see how precious in all the history this moment is. Uh, and Lord, that we would long to glorify you. Amen. Amen. Well, do you keep that passage open? Um, it is, in fact, if you're an Anglican um, 
it is uh, Palm Sunday today, but because we don't do church services every day, uh, we're going to have to make it Cross Sunday today. So you will get some of these at the end, and instead of reflecting upon the triumphal entry of the king, we're going to be reflecting on the triumphal coronation of the king, because this is the moment uh, where God's king uh, really reveals what God is about. Uh, I... A long time ago, I did a, a mini holiday club in a, in a church that um, uh, was very liberal. And so they believed there's many ways to God. And it didn't really matter whether you had Jesus dying on the cross or not. Uh, and uh, one of the women that was helping me out at the end, I, I got to the end. I said, so look, there's Jesus dying on the cross for us. And what he calls us to do is to take up our cross and follow him. And you know, even die for people if it's necessary. And she followed that with, um, uh, absolutely not. Uh, if I catch any of you here trying to die for someone else, I'll kill you myself, or something worse to that effect. Uh, I'm thinking, yeah, I think in the future I'm going to be more careful about who I do mission with, because actually what you've done there is just totally swept out the legs from that gospel message. However, she was probably right. You know, children do take things very literally, and so you do want to be careful uh, about that safeguarding aspect, don't you? But uh, it got me thinking, is actually, is... Is Jesus dying on the cross just a waste? And are we really called to take up our cross like this as Christians? You know, can you overdo it? Do we overdo it a little bit as Christians in the way that we follow Jesus? Can we be a bit over the top? Uh, Well, I've been um, reading uh, recently a book uh, by a chap called Glenn Scrivener called The Air We Breathe. I think some of us have read it in book clubs as well, which traces all things in our culture that we love, like equality or kindness, progress, science, freedom, enlightenment, traces all that back to the arrival of Christianity, saying that actually the West is weird in its culture, that we value all those things. And it traces that back to Christianity. And what that really drew my attention to is, is that uh, this little quote from Bezel Murray, when, however, the Son of Man was lifted up on his cross, all the world was affected and history was changed forever when the son of man was lifted up on the cross all the world uh, was affected and history was changed forever that's both eternally because we're going to see we end up in heaven not in hell if we trust in jesus but also our very culture has been shaped by this moment and so I wonder, you know, how can such a worldwide culture-changing event not change our lives utterly? And so listening today, we're going to see why a costly, radical difference is right for us and for our culture that we live in. Why us being totally, radically different for Jesus is the right thing, contrary to my holiday club helper. Um, And I want to point out then that that the necessary application for us from that as well. So we're going to see in here, verses 28 to 37, we're going to see the Son of God dies according to God's plan for me and you. The Son of God dies according to God's plan for me and you. And then the necessary application, I think, that comes out of that is 38 onwards, which is daring to be a disciple who follows the king who dies. Daring to be a disciple who follows the king who dies. So let me just show you here. The Son of God dies according to God's plan for you and for me. 
Uh, it's marvellous that we get when you get a purpose statement, it makes preaching and understanding the Bible so much easier, doesn't it? Have a look at verse 35. Suddenly, either the man who's telling John or John himself breaks into the narrative and says, the man who saw it, Jesus dying on the cross, has given testimony. That is this witness statement. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies. Why? So that you and I may also believe. Do you see, that's the purpose here, is that we would believe the amazing truths that are going on here. The goal is that we would also believe. What should we believe? Specifically in this context, that Jesus died. There's rumours circulating about the time of this gospel that Jesus might have fainted, or his followers might have nicked his body, and, or nicked him and spirited him away somewhere else. Um, there's all sorts of different theories about how maybe Jesus didn't die. But what's written here is that written so that we would believe that Jesus did actually die. It's understandable, isn't it? I mean, maybe you find it hard to get your head around God, the Son of God, dying. That's, you know, theologically, I find that quite difficult. But you might find it difficult because dying in such a shameful, painful, embarrassing death makes no sense at all. So surely this can't have happened. Many people down the histories, uh, ages of history have thought that. But these things are written that we might believe that Jesus died. We must never become numb to the price of our salvation. The physical suffering gives us a tiny window into the actual suffering endured on our part by Jesus as he took our wrath. But did you notice the focus here in John is not on the physical suffering, but on the fact of death and death according to a plan can you see that death is not an accident here but planned in verse 28 jesus cries out it is finished it is finished interesting not what my god my god why have you forsaken me interestingly here john's focus is on what's been finished and it's the plan that god had back in john chapter 4 Verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. God the Father sent God the Son with a plan. And so what's the will of God the Father who sent this Son? John 10, 14, Jesus also says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. You and I are the sheep. Jesus lays down his life for us. John 12, uh, verse 31, in the run-up to this passage again, Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Do you see the purpose of him dying here up on a cross is to draw all peoples to him. And just as we were learning in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him... The iniquity, the sin of us all. It's hard to say that without the bar bar do bar bar. But it's even harder to say that when I think that the reason why God has sent the Son 700 years beforehand in Isaiah and Jesus in the run up is so that my sin would be laid on him, that he would lay down his life instead of me. It's even harder when I think of Isaiah 53 a bit further onwards. Yet it was the Lord Almighty's will 
to crush him and cause him to suffer. Uh, and through that, the Lord make his life an offering for sin. Jesus is fulfilling a work that God sent him to do, which is to die in our place for our sin. And it's been his will since before time began that you and I might be forgiven and, according to John 1, be given the right to be called children of God. And Jesus is doing that plan to the letter. Can you see how John raises that? So he starts off, knowing that everything had now been finished and that scripture would be fulfilled. See this fulfillment? And then the same thing in verse 36. These happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. And what are the little things we're picking out to show that this is all part of God's plan? Where verse 29, there he is having a drink, uh, thirsting and drinking as predicted of the suffering servant. And the irony of the one who in John 4 says that he will give water such that we will never thirst again which will become a wellspring of water to eternal life. The iron of him being thirsty on a cross and needing this drink. Verse 36, not a a bone of his body will be broken. This is all happening right in the midst of the festival called the Passover, where a lamb was sacrificed to remember when a lamb died in the place of God's people to save them from the wrath of God, from God's judgment. And part of the description of that lamb was it should have no bone broken. And so here we see the lamb of God, the son of God, dying on a cross in exactly the same way, with no broken bone. So the big picture, and right down to the tiny detail, Jesus is doing everything here that he can to fulfill this plan of God that you and I might have someone die in our place. John means to bring out that Jesus truly died and that his death was in accordance with the will of God revealed in scripture. And that's the source of life and cleansing for men and women. So look, here he is, he's really dying. Verse 30, you notice just as we get into the death is that when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That is the moment that Jesus dies. And it is a wonderful voluntary moment The giving up the spirit in the preceding passages to this. Everyone gives up Jesus to something else. They give up Jesus to the teachers of the law. They give up Jesus to the Roman God. They give up Jesus to crucifixion. And what does Jesus do? He voluntarily gives up his spirit to serve this plan of God and to die. Do you see, it's um, the fulfillment of the plan here is the death of Jesus. It's not that Jesus came and taught all he needed to taught. That doesn't fulfill God's plan. Uh, It's not, um, uh, what were the other things I had? It's not because he taught amazing stuff or that he did incredible things, nor just that because God came. That doesn't fulfill the plan. Fulfilling the plan is the death. Verse 31 to verse 34 are there to leave us in no doubt that Jesus is dead. So verse 31, now it's the preparation day, uh, the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because of Passover, and because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate, the Roman governor, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. That's an awful, awful thing, isn't it? In order to hasten your death on a cross, because you die of suffocation, you break the knees, and that way you can no longer push yourself up to get every breath. 
And instead, you just hang. And after a while, you can't breathe because all this is gone. And so the Romans are going to go and they're going to make sure that these people on the cross are dead. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. Do you see? So the Romans here are the independent verification. They are the system by which Jesus dies and they verify that he is dead. And they don't just leave it at that, verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Hard to stay fainted when someone does that or to fake it. But also, interestingly, is that when you die on a cross, you die by suffocation and your lungs fill up with fluid. These guys didn't know that. But the Roman soldiers knew that if you put a spear in the side and they don't flinch and blood and water comes out, that means they've died. Do you see? It's a gruesome and horrible verification that this person is dead. And that is weird because above his head it says the king of the Jews, the Messiah. This is who we are saying as Christians we love and follow. The king who dies. The innocent, perfect son of God who takes the guilt, shame, pain, eternal punishment that rebels like you and I deserve. He dies. That's a huge challenge for us, isn't it? Because will we dare to be disciples of this king who dies? And that's what we see in verse 38 onwards. Have a look at at Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We don't really hear what happens of them after this, but we hear about what they do here, partly because it verifies that Jesus is dead, but also it tells us a little bit of what we're expected to do as Jesus' followers. Uh, Here we go. So we've got... Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Can you imagine how scary that would be to do? This man has just been killed for his teaching and all that he's associated with. His disciples have fled and left him. They are nowhere in this picture. But Joseph goes and asks for his body. That's like someone going to the American authorities and asking for Osama bin Laden's body, isn't it? You just instantly, you are a suspect person. But Joseph is risking everything to go and honour this dead Jesus. Why does he do that? It is because... Keep reading. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. That's why he does it. It's because he's been learning and following Jesus, and he still does. But secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. Do you see that? There's fear in the air. And so he goes secretly to Pilate, who I'd also be afraid of if I was him. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus back in uh, John 3? He's the man who says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, nothing, you can't. What? He goes away all unhappy because he hasn't understood that actually inheriting eternal life is about receiving Jesus, not about what you do. But here he is right at the end. Maybe he's got it. And maybe in this moment of trusting Jesus, he's receiving eternal life even as he buries the king that has died for it. But look at his heart. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus, bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. That might seem weird to you and I, but what he's doing is is sorting Jesus' body out by putting this myrrh and aloes on it. It's an enormous and extravagant gesture. 35 kilos. Anyone here weigh 35 kilos? 
My son weighs about 35 kilos. That's, you know, about that much meat. So can you imagine how much that would cost? And Nicodemus has brought that and he's lavishing that on Jesus. Here's another person that wants to honour this king who would die. And then taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrap it with spices and strips of linen. This was the, uh, in accordance with the Jewish, Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was... Uh, sorry, do you see that? This was in accordance with Jesus' burial customs. They want to do the right thing, don't they? They're trying to do the godly and the right thing by this king. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby... They laid Jesus there. Can you hear how it is all so pathetic and weak and shameful? Isn't it? There's nothing grand or huge about this, like burying the queen, however many months ago that was. And yet here are these disciples in their weakness, in their mess, doing what they can to honour this king, putting their lives and daring to be a disciple. Can you see that? So weak and quiet and and even in great danger and yet quite possibly inheriting eternal life and the right to be called children as God as they do this. This shameful and secretive pathetic burial. But these disciples risk lots for the king who has died for them. Can you see that? It's good because you basically, it's right isn't it? Because you become like whoever you worship or whatever you worship. You know you watch your dad dancing on the dance floor and it's awful to behold, but you know one day I will be like that. Uh, we joke with Darren on the staff team who loves Star Wars so much. He's the minister at St. George's and uh, Christchurch Waterside that he actually has tattoos of the, uh, what's the spaceship called? Millennium Falcon. He's got them on him. He's, and he goes, yeah, yeah, you become what you worship. Right? That's what happens here, isn't it? It's, this is our king who we follow. And we dare to be different for Jesus and to follow him as disciples that are totally different from our culture. And that's a good thing. Here's why that's a good thing. That's a challenge for us and why it's a good thing for us and for our culture. Jesus as the Messiah gave everything in obedience to his father's kingdom plans, didn't he? He gave everything. He gave everything to give us who deserve God's judgment for rebelling against him. Not a cup of wrath, but the cup of eternal life. And that's the total opposite of the way that our culture and human culture through all the ages and all time has worked. It's the totally opposite. If you're a young person here tonight, you need to be aware of that. Or this morning, you need to be aware of that. You're being trained to be disciples of the self. And that couldn't be more different from what we've seen today, could it? Jesus gives himself, whereas the iPhone tells us is that all our world revolves around the I. But Jesus' kingdom revolves around sinners, because the king dies for them. Does yours revolve around messy, sinful people, or yourself? Wouldn't it be great if our culture revolved around messy, sinful people rather than ourselves? Choosing what is right and wrong is always determined now by what I feel is right. Jesus' choices are determined by what the God the Father has ordained in Scripture. 
even if it is painful, costly, shameful, unappealing to new believers, or just a waste. Which is all those things that this death is, isn't it? Do your beliefs, and so your choices, do they revolve around what God's plan is in Scripture, like Jesus does, in those difficult areas? Maybe it's same-sex marriage at the minute you're wrestling with. Here's another one. As Miley Cyrus is proclaiming on the radio at the minute that she can love herself better than you can, we are hearing that the cardinal sin of our culture is not to love yourself. That song is about surviving pain and grief, and the solution is to love yourself. Well, Jesus' solution is totally the opposite. It's to be loved by him. Perfect, eternal, never-stopping love of the most important and wonderful person that ever existed or will exist. He can always love you better than you or anyone else can love yourself. And so don't love yourself. Love Jesus and be loved by him. Or the greatest showman. What does that tell us? Look out, because here I come, and I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. I love belting out that song. I didn't sing it there. I probably should have done. I love belting out that song because it speaks to my heart. It's about surviving shame and pain, isn't it? And the solution is to be loud and proud about yourself and impose yourself. That is the opposite of Christ. He dies shamefully and quietly on a cross in a corner that's forgotten in history. There's no assertion of his self-brilliance, even though he had every right to do so. Forgetting self, he dies for the selfish. That's how we survive pain and shame, is we go to the one person who knew it, and we say, love me, and we're filled up with love for him. This is the most influential moment in all of history because it gives us the why for everything that we do in our culture that is weird. Everything that is weird. If you're, uh, if you're a young person here today and you're wrestling with questions in your, in your classes about why you do things, why do, should you be kind to other people? That is weird. No one does that. Why should young men... Look after, be proactive in protecting weaker people and providing for them. Why? That is weird. Every single point in history, in any culture that you care to go to, men use their power to accumulate stuff, power and people for themselves. Why do we not do that? Because of our king. He did the opposite, didn't he? Because he dies for people who are the image of God. That's why we look after each other. Because we're in God's image. That's why we use all our power to serve other people. Because that's what Jesus did. We've got to dare to be different. To be disciples of Jesus. And keep doing that. Because that is why our culture. All the good bits are so brilliant. Is because people did that in the past. Think of those early Christians who arrived in Britain thousands of years ago in their kind of, I don't know, monk habit or whatever you imagine, and they step off the boat and they come bringing Jesus. And they do that despite great weakness, personal danger. And like Nicodemus and Josephus, 
um, you know, they're bringing a message to people who say, look, you kill your enemies. And they're saying, no, no, no. You forgive your enemies and you love your enemies. Some of them died to, to spread that message of Jesus Christ, didn't they? And yet now we stand and look back at a society that has been totally transformed by their daring discipleship in being obedient to Christ in Scripture and going and preaching this king who dies for his people. And isn't that also the deepest comfort for us today? If you're someone who is feeling utterly overwhelmed by suffering at the minute, or you've got all sorts of joys and hopes and expectations for the future, maybe you're someone who's wrestling with what your reality is because of that. Is this, just, is this my reality from now on, that I'm just going to have this pain forever and ever? That's my reality. I'm just going to be unaccepted by people forever and ever. That is just my reality. You hear that? It's my reality all the time, don't you? Yeah, it's not. It's not. Your pain is real, and it is painful. But if you go to what's the reality of the whole universe, if you dig down to the bottom of everything and you keep going to the foundations of every single thing everywhere, what do we find at the bottom of the foundation of creation? We find God who made it. And do you know what kind of God he is? He's this God. The God who dies on the cross for you and I which means the foundation of your reality, whether you know Jesus or not, is unconditional love. That is the foundation of your reality. It means that good will win. It means that love will thrive. It means that hope will be delivered upon. Because we have a God who knows pain and suffering, but actually does that to give you and I eternal life according to God's plans. So great is his love for you and I. Your reality is not do better, but be loved more by Jesus. Should we pray that we would be daring disciples who live according to that? Oh Lord God, we praise you so much that you have built your foundations of your creation not, Lord, on natural selection and being the top of the pack. Lord, that you have built your universe, Lord, uh, not on chance that we just lumped with whatever we've got in this life. But Lord, you built your universe and each one of us here today, knit together in our mother's wombs, you have built us by your amazing and incredible love. And Lord, when we see you, the Son of God, dying on the cross, there can be no doubt of your very great love for us, even though we are your enemies in our minds. Lord, we praise you and we glorify you because no one is greater than you. And Lord, we praise you for the way that you transform our culture, the way that you move amongst us, even amongst those who don't know you, as we live Daring to be disciples who are different. Daring to be disciples who are like you, Lord. Not selfish, but selfless. I pray you bless us here at Emmanuel, that we would be a people that are known for dying on the cross and taking up our cross just like you, Lord. Amen.